We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Welcome to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from Lutruita, Tasmania. Today is one of our co-hosts' first episodes, Ryan Smith, and we are very excited to be welcoming him to the team. As always, I'm your weekly host, Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record in Nipalina, Lutruita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, today we're going to be talking about all things space with a wonderfully named guest, Mars, which I'm super excited about because I actually confess that I know close to nothing about space, like at all. So, (laughs) coming in at a very low level. But Ryan, can you tell us a little bit more about our expert guest today? Hi, Neve. It's great to be here. So, um, Mars is a PhD student who's working at the University of Tasmania and also CSIRO Data 61. Um, where she predominantly works to improve satellite and space debris tracking radars, which is pretty cool. Um, She also teaches programming, she's an author, and she runs speaking events, and she's also a freelance developer of STEM education materials. And somehow made time to come in and speak to us. Thanks so much, Mars. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Cool. So, Mars, can you just give us a quick overview of some of the work you do with tracking satellites and space debris? Well... I'm doing my PhD, like like you said, with the University of Tasmania and CSIRO Data 61. And so in my undergraduate, I concentrate on these very specific types of data analysis and like smart programming systems that I never, ever thought I would be able to apply to space. Uh, even though I loved space so much, it never occurred to me that I could work in it. And then when I was looking for things for my PhD, they're like, oh, actually at CSIRO, We've got this set of amazing telescopes. CSIRO has some of the most powerful telescopes in the world, and Australia has an especial amount of large radio telescopes and radio arrays for one country to have. It's amazing, and so does the University of Tasmania. So it's like a dream team. And they're like, well, we have all these telescopes. They're amazing for looking at pulsars, looking at deep space. But we know that there's this growing problem with space debris, and the things that we need to keep track of space debris, are powerful radars. They cost billions of dollars to build. They take years to build. But we've already got these radio telescopes. Can we make them look at space debris? And it turns out not as easy as we thought. Just because it's the same (laughs) kind of sensor doesn't mean that it can do that work because it has a different kind of brain. So it's like if we have our two eyes that give us depth perception and we can see one object in 2D with one eye and in 2D with another eye, but because we have that comparison, we know kind of how far away it is. And if you bring your finger up close to your nose in between your eyes, you can't really get that 3D sense anymore because it's too close to your face. The way that your brain reconciles those two different points of view breaks down. And we're trying to do the same thing with telescopes. We're getting these different telescopes that look at deep, deep space, and we usually use multiple radio telescopes together to make that multi-point perspective so that we have a sense of depth. But once we're trying to look at something that is only a few hundred kilometres up, all of a sudden it's too close. And the way that they can reconcile those different images that they're seeing breaks down. And so the sense of depth that they have is inaccurate. And it means that even though we have these amazing world-class radio instruments, they can't tell how close something they're looking at is unless we change something in what is effectively their brain. So I do programming for the back ends that process the data coming off large radio telescopes. 
That's so cool that you can essentially like change the function of something that already exists by Absolutely. just reprogramming it. Could you briefly explain like some of the like really high level what's machine learning and what's the kind of what programming is? I don't know if that's a really dumb question. So we can treat programming as like a, a language, a special language that we have to speak to give a computer instructions. And it's like if we put you uh, and Ryan in two separate rooms and you had to write notes to each other to explain some complex task, like that game, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. So like one of you's in a room and has to do a complex task and the other one's in another room and knows how to do it. But the only way you can communicate is if you use like these five specific words and you could pick any order and any amount of them, but you only get those five words. Let's hope you figure out how to convey this complex task. And that's all we have to do with computers. We've developed this syntax, so this very special language and these very special words and tokens that we can put in different orders to give them instructions, but they, be, they have to be very simple. They have to be compare these two numbers. They have to be subtract, multiply, move this part of memory. So this value that you're holding on your disk somewhere, move it to this other part. And by building up lots of those little blocks, we can make complex programs by just saying, you know, if somebody has clicked on this icon, execute the process with this ID and that will be draw pixels in these places so it looks like a window and then keep track of what memory belongs to that application. And It's all made up of billions and billions of these tiny, tiny little logic blocks. And so in typical programming, as opposed to machine learning, we would call traditional programming, is you're writing some process that takes in some input, does that process and produces some output. And sometimes the process that we're looking to create or the output we're trying to create is really complex. So like if you're trying to write a program for something that's a really human task, something that's really easy for humans but that is hard to explain, like walking. If you were to take a human walking or running down the street and explain as a set of instructions every single rotational movement of every single joint in their body that makes that up, we would probably really struggle to do that. You know how to walk but you can't explain it to somebody who doesn't already do it. You don't have that kind of abstract thinking. But a computer requires those exact sets of instructions. And if we can't break down a task into these specific sets of instructions, it won't be able to do it. And so the really amazing thing about machine learning is it's a method of programming where we create this network that starts in a random state and that we give more and more data that are examples of what the input is and what the output it should produce is. And it has to create the process in between. So you say, you know, here are the levers you can pull there. You can move all these different joints. We won't tell you what you're supposed to do with them. We know you're supposed to walk, but we can't explain that to you. But when you do walk, we'll give you points. And because a computer can try trillions of things a second, eventually they converge on the correct behavior, even if we didn't explain to them what that was. And even if they couldn't conceptualize what that was, because a computer doesn't know what walking is. So what actually drew you to learning about machine learning and programming? Because... I know a lot of people, computers can be kind of scary, but obviously, like, you're all over it and your passion shows. So how did you actually get into it in the first place? Oh, gosh, by accident. <laughs> uh, I, I have a brother who's nine years younger than me, and he had been struggling in school, and I just moved to Tasmania, and I had resolved that at 23 years old, I was going to go back to university because I came from a place where I didn't know anyone who went to university. No one in my family had been... And now I came here and almost every person I met in Hobart had tried university, even if they didn't like it. Some people had a degree and nothing to do with what they had a job in now. But the university's right there and it's, it seems really integrated with the community. So there was a lot of goodwill. And so I was looking around. I'm like, I know I like STEM. I've always liked mathematics. I liked biology. 
well, I liked chemistry, but I was better at biology and I liked maths, but I didn't think I could be a mathematician. I was looking at all these things and I just, I didn't feel very academic in that moment. But computers are like the thing that I played video games on. They're the things that like all my recreational activities came around. And so I, I looked at making something like that, that could have that impact on other people's lives. I didn't think it was deep and meaningful, but I also had this younger brother who had been struggling with school and he loved video games and he was in this like... 16-year-old, I guess, uh, period of wanting to make video games because every boy that age plays Call of Duty and wants to make the next Call of Duty. And I thought if I studied ICT, maybe he would too and I could help him. It was kind of a whim. That's so wholesome. I I love that. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. We've been talking with our expert guest, Mars Butfield-Addison. Stick with us and in just a moment we'll be talking more to Mars about her PhD work. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about satellites and space debris. My name's Ryan Smith, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Mars Butfield-Addison. So, Mars, you were telling us that you've applied your computer programming and machine learning knowledge and passion to look at space debris. So, can you just tell us briefly, what's so important about space debris? That's a great question. Space debris is kind of a buzzword that's come up a lot in the media in the last few years that they keep talking about the space debris crisis or the, there was that Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity, that taught everyone the term uh, Kessler Syndrome. So people are kind of ambiently aware about it, uh, aware of it in the last few years, which previously wasn't the case. But actually we've known about this issue since the 80s, 90s, when a couple of scientists at NASA were looking at some of the models that they used to look at how asteroids collided in asteroid belts. And they started looking at the fact that we were having more and more satellites put into space at that time, so we had only had a handful of satellites launched each year by that point, but since the end of the 1950s, so it was still quite a few. And up until that point, they'd kind of assumed that space was so big, there was no way that we ever had to worry about things hitting each other, especially if there was only a few dozen. But it turns out that when you look at the orbital dynamics and the breakup properties of these things... That's not the case. The way that the magnetism around our planet works kind of draws things into these certain places. And that's why if you look at a plot or a visualisation of where the satellites are around Earth now, you can see there are clear bands. And it's kind of similar to the way that you get rings on a planet, that they kind of converge along this plane and over the pole. And the really low Earth satellites form like a shell around the Earth at, at all all latitudes at maybe 500 300, 500 kilometres up. And so there are these, these hot spots in that low Earth orbit and then that geostationary ring that's, that's quite, quite distant and then also up over the poles. And these concentrated areas mean that things might actually collide and have. And so since we found out that, hey, this is maybe something that we should worry about, we've now spent more and more time looking at it and actually it's happened quite a lot. And our ability to observe space debris from the ground isn't great, <laughs> which is why we're working on it, which means that sometimes we don't even know how many breakups or collisions have happened. So if two things in orbit, so so let's say two active satellites, manage to orbit too close because they get pulled together and because they drag along the top of the atmosphere, which changes their orbit. So it's not like you just put something in orbit and it will keep going around in the same place. It doesn't. It changes all the time. Where there's solar weather, that creates pressure around the planet that will change its orbit, all sorts of things. Then we get this problem where two things might have ended up on a path of collision. And if they hit each other, they're going thousands of kilometres a second. It's like 10 times the speed of a a speeding bullet. 
and they'll just absolutely disintegrate. And we also know that from the flow-on effects that if two satellites hit each other and they break into tiny pieces, on average, those tiny pieces that they create can make about 10 more collisions per each of the original objects for their mass size. So it, it has this cascading runaway effect, and that's what we keep modelling, that one day, two particular objects, we don't know which, we don't know when, they will hit each other in a way that then the pieces that they create will hit something else, will hit something else, will hit something else, and we'll get what's called ablation cascade. Uh, and this is where we ha- kind of have this unavoidable event that's going to create a debris field around Earth. And because everything will be moving so fast and everything's so sharp and it's all shards of metal and radioactive elements and coolant that's frozen into crystals and bits of solar arrays, it's just going to be a big mess. And then we might not even be able to launch things into or through orbit anymore. That might end our ability to do space exploration overnight until maybe in a century's time when we develop the technology to scrape it up. And our wow. ability to scrape up even satellites that have retired but haven't broken apart yet is still a decade away from being a mature solution. So we're really, really on the clock here and we have no idea how long that clock is. So how likely is it that that big dumpster fire would happen? Well, actually, it depends on the model. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, it could be something that happens 30 years from now. Statistically, it was pretty likely that it should have already happened. Mm-hmm which implies that actually we've been incredibly lucky as the numbers go. Yeah. We have tens of thousands of things in orbit, and that's not including shard debris. That's whole objects, and they just manage to miss each other every day. If there's tens of thousands of bits of kit in orbit, do they, like, retrieve them when they're no longer doing their purpose, or are they all still doing the function they were set at, sent up there to do? Most of the things in orbit are inactive. So the problem is that if you launch something into orbit... Unless it's put in a very specific orbit or you have propellant left to put it in a very specific orbit, it's not going to come back down necessarily. So usually if we launch something into low Earth orbit, it will have a degrading orbit, which means like in the next 25 years it will manage to bring itself down, even though some of those only function for one year, five years. So they're still up there for quite a long time, not doing anything useful. But if we launch things higher, and like I mentioned earlier, the geostationary ring is this distance from space where if something is orbiting... It orbits at the same speed that the Earth revolves. And we put things there like comm satellites because it means that as we turn and it orbits, it's always going to be over the same part of the Earth. And out there, they're not going to come back in, not for tens of thousands of years unless we do something about it. And so in the last few decades, we've started making international treaties that propose that people should commit to having sensible retirement plans for their satellites, which just means if you launch something up there, you better know in the orbit that it's in, how long is it going to stay there? Are you going to save enough fuel to manoeuvre it into a place where it's going to come back down? And quite often for the really fast satellites, what we do instead of bringing them back down is we do this thing called a graveyard orbit where we push it out beyond where we currently put satellites into just slightly further orbit that we've decided isn't useful and that we won't need anytime soon. And now we're just creating a debris belt out there that we're just not worrying about because we've decided that we don't care about, you know... 70,000 kilometres out, and we also, in just the last few years, have started crashing things into, like, the moon to get rid of them. So, Mars, you've mentioned that the likelihood depends on the model you're using. So can you just illustrate for us quickly what kind of modelling approaches you're using and what STEM professionals um, are involved in with those models and how we can help with the problem? Yeah, well, uh, so 
that side of things isn't necessarily my area, but it's a really interesting area that uh, has a big place in astrophysics especially, which is about simulation-based science. And it often means that you have like a computer program that's made to be like a really high-fidelity 3D physics simulation that it knows about the concept of gravity and how things collide and how things fracture and how liquids work. They're very complicated programs and they write objects in these programs that represent real entities. So you would have to you know, make the Earth and make it be a representation that has the right mass, that has the right oblateness, which is how we're not really a sphere, we're kind of smushed, and make it have the right magnetism. And so all of these things together need to be represented as accurately as we possibly can. And then we model different numbers of objects. So let's say we had the amount of objects in orbit that we have now, about 9,000 tonnes. Let's say we had twice that, which is what we can assume we will have in about five years' time because the growth limit has gone crazy. And we just model all of these things in a computer and then try to run different simulations. So in every simulation, there's some random element, which is which is the first collision that occurs. How much debris that will create will depend on the size of the objects that collided first and where in the latitude and which uh, orbital regime. And depending on each of those things, which themselves are slightly random variables, that will result in a very different outcome. And so we run lots and lots of these simulations with the same objects, but beginning with a different catalyst. And they do similar things in astrophysics to look at you know, how a star might form because we look at things out in deep space and we're seeing very, very old light. So we don't know what's happened with it now and we don't know where it came from. We've just got a snapshot in time. So a lot of astrophysics is based on us kind of taking a snapshot of what's there now and guessing based on their properties what they could do in the future and also where they came from. But this kind of science is also really popular in like oceanography and climate science. They try to model the, the weather systems of the planet to that high fidelity and then run simulations on those, which is just the program working out if all of these things happened what would happen next? What would happen next? What would happen next? So, Mars, you were telling us in part one that your PhD work and your area of interest is can we reprogram the brains of radio telescopes to help us identify space debris where it is? So is the goal here to essentially understand if when this might happen, what the outcome would look like and how we can plan for it because we think it's, it's going to happen, so we should be prepared? Or like, what's the end game? So those kinds of models usually exist to inform policymakers, uh-huh, right. whereas what we do uh, in people like myself who are writing programs for telescopes, the end goal here is actually just to keep track of things. So yeah. because we only have brand new technologies that are just being tested in the prototype phase right now of active debris removal, which means something that we put into orbit that actually brings things down, and there are a few really cool things like that. They're like they send up little robots with little pincer hands, or they send up these things that have like a big long net that they have a magnet and they stick the magnet to the thing. And because it has this big long sail, then that creates more drag, which makes it deorbit itself. It's very cool. They're very cool, <laughs> but they're still a while away and they, they're really hard to get up there. So we have this thing called space domain awareness, which is well, if we can't go up there and bring it down, we at least have to know how much is up there and we have to know where it is. And so we have the, this global network of telescopes and also some telescopes that are themselves on satellites in space that watch space debris all day, every day, and make constant updates to when it was last seen and what trajectory it's on so that if it looks like an active satellite that we care about because we have so much critical infrastructure running off satellites like communications and like GPS and defence and climate, like we do, all of our weather prediction comes off satellites, if they look like they're going to hit 
then they have to run through a database of everything that's near it that can move. And they're like, well, if one of these two things can move, we need to manoeuvre it. If they both can, maybe we should move them both slightly. We want to get them as far away from each other as possible. But also fuel is a big component that every time we put something in orbit, it has very limited fuel. And every one of these manoeuvres that we do is shortening the life of that satellite. So we don't want to be dodging every day, otherwise that satellite's going to be up there for a year and then it will be dead, and that will be a waste of the millions of dollars it took to put it up there. It's, it's like a constant constraint-solving problem where we're trying to find the most efficient way to avoid as many of these tiny collisions as possible. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. We've been talking with Mars Butfield Addison about her awesome passion for space debris research, programming, and uh, machine learning, which is fascinating. Stick with us, we'll be talking more about what all this means for the future. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about satellites and space junk. My name's Ryan Smith, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Mars Butfield Addison. Mars, given your passion and expertise in space, what are you most excited about in your work or the future work you're doing to deal with space degree? Well, it's, I'm, I think personally I'm very motivated by conservation, just because that's what my personal values are, and I'm a big environmentalist down here on our planet. I think that a lot of the things that I look forward to personally in this space are like, I don't know if you recently heard about the anti-satellite test. That's a thing that a couple of countries have done. So we're making all this debris by accident because we put satellites up there and they hit each other and we're like, that's awful. But at the same time, some people are making debris on purpose. There have been quite a few countries that have launched missiles into orbit to shoot down so far, only their satellites as a test, just to demonstrate to other countries that if we wanted to shoot down your satellites, we could. And so we've had, there was a massive, massive breakup caused by a Chinese anti-satellite missile test in 2009, I believe. And last November, there was a big one done by the Russians. And the US, of course, goes, this is so awful. They're ruining the space environment. And we need to make laws against this, even though before this, the US spent like 40 years doing these tests and even like launched nukes into space to supercharge the atmosphere to kill each other's satellites. It was crazy. So there's these awful, awful things that we're doing that I, I really hope that by knowing more about the debris that's up there and the results of these sorts of tests and other really reckless things about the rather unregulated area of private space launch, that we will get better regulations that prevent this sort of problem because it's not fair that we're doing something that might deny future generations access to space entirely. That's crazy to me. <laughs> but also, I guess I'm really excited about all of the satellite infrastructure and the services that enables, like the, the human component. One day when we start doing these things well and we know more about the consequences and the debris risk and we have technologies that deal with this better, it is going to be a component of making sure that especially people in remote areas, have good connectivity and connectivity to services that are going increasingly online. But also I just think space is exciting. I learned about space when I was a kid. Like the first time they told me about the different planets and how different they were and how big they were when I was like five years old. It was nuts. I've just been nuts about it ever since. <laughs> so it's also exciting from like my inner child. It's like I get to work with space. That's so exciting. What would you say to our listeners is a key takeaway from this? Because it seems like it's more of a policy issue. So how do you think we can kind of tackle this? 
So it is going to take some time. I do think we will solve this problem. I am actually pretty convinced that we'll manage to solve it before we get an ablation cascade issue. I think that everyone who works in this space is very optimistic and I guess feels like a really tight-knit community about our shared motivation of this thing that sometimes is perceived as very far away. Like there's certain types of people who think that it's very odd of me to put all my energy into space stuff. They're like, oh, we've got real problems here on this planet. But it's part of our planet and no matter what you think about space colonization, we do want to explore. We do want to send probes out to look at other planets and look at beyond our solar system. We want to see this universe that we don't know anything about that we were just dropped into that's amazing. And we can't do that if we don't fix this problem. So I see it as it's motivated from a really hopeful place. Like we do these things, this this space janitor duties, and it means that we get (laughs) to see space. That's very important. I love that space janitor. (laughs) Such a good way to put it. Yeah, so obviously it's quite a big problem, like a global issue, but you're still here in Tassie, and often we think that we have to move away to big organisations like NASA or move to America or somewhere to pursue our dreams, but you're still here. So what would you say to our listeners is important about following their dreams if they think that they do need to move away for that? I think do whatever makes you feel happy. I moved to Tasmania, and I remember coming here for a holiday when I was 17 and I was absolutely convinced it was the most beautiful place in the world and that I would not be happy until I lived here and when I was 23 I quit my job packed up everything I could fit into my car and just drove here that's why I live in Tasmania I thought it was the best place I could be to do the things I wanted to do at the time turns out I did something very different it's still I think the best place to do what I do but not everyone has to think the same thing I don't believe in a lot of this rhetoric that we get in Tasmania that's like, oh, there aren't any jobs unless you go to the mainland. But at the same time, we don't need to make people feel bad if we're going to the mainland. Quite often you get people who move away and they either make new families and find happy lives or they come back with a renewed appreciation for Tasmania. Like, that's good for everyone. But at the same time, I would say that in Tasmania, we're especially lucky. We have really good internet, even out into the regions. We have green energy. We are uniquely positioned to create an amazing remote technology-based workforce and I'm surprised that we don't have more ICT education particularly in like the west coast and areas that have otherwise suffered with digital literacy and even just literacy and numeracy it's really unfortunate because there is no reason why you can't do this kind of work from anywhere if you work with computers I get to work from coffee shops when I go on holidays to the west coast because I love Strawn I sit there and I work do my work from wherever it's great (laughs) Awesome. What a great message to end the show on. Thanks so much for being such a fantastic guest today, Mars. It's been a pleasure to have you on with us. And thank you to Ryan. Excellent first episode. Kudos. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again on That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you enjoyed the show. Just remember, you can find all of our previous episodes by going to thatscience.org or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.